You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Morning. Go ahead and find your seats wherever you may be. Hey, thanks for coming out. You never know how much snow you're going to get. As Lucy tells me often, you never know what you don't know. But here we are. Um, Grateful to be with with you here this morning. And uh, we're going to continue this morning uh, in the midst of our current sermon series, Gender for the Glory of God. And today we kind of round the basis uh, on, on marriage, gender and marriage. And if you've missed these messages, if you've missed a week, the last three weeks, I think that we've been talking about this, uh, I encourage you to listen to our podcast. Uh, take the time, as this series really does build and intersect and connect with each other. And concerning gender for the glory of God in marriage, Zach has been saying this the past two weeks. And I just want to refresh or kind of orient our minds to what we've been talking about. It's on the screen here. God created marriage and that in marriage, he calls men to bear ultimate leadership responsibility for the family and women to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. And so last week, uh, Zach unpacked what God's word, what God's instruction was for men as husbands. The husbands are to sacrificially lead their wives just like Jesus sacrificially led the church. And today, we have the, we're going to unpack the role of women as wives in marriage. What does it mean, as we've been saying, what does it mean to co-labor with your husband as the appointed helpmate Within the family. So, we're going to spend some time in Ephesians 5. So, if you have your Bibles or you have a digital copy, go ahead and and load it up. Ephesians 5, verse 22 is where we'll begin. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 22, you can follow along with me. It says this Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And as I read this text, I don't know about you or within your own heart, but I kind of cringe at this word, wives submit to your husbands. There's few commands, right, in, in, in Scripture that, that strike like our modern and Western ears more offensive than the command to submit. And we hear submission or this idea of submission, and immediately we think our minds go to the ideas of inferiority or tyranny or abuse, right? It carries with it a lot of baggage, not good baggage. And so this, la- this verse lands on us as we read it this morning, kind of like a thorny burr stuck on our pants. 
It's, it's often the go-to verse why many just chuck the Christian faith, saying this is an outdated set of principles. Maybe this was good in like the 1950s type marriage, but irrelevant today. I, I get that. I really do. I'm not blind or deaf to culture and the way our own hearts operate. But I want to suggest this morning that there's much more to this conversation. Because God's eternal word is meant for our good. And while at times, such as here in Ephesians, it may be hard to make sense, there's great meaning in this text for all of us. Wives, husbands, singles, students, children. Because this, this text, I firmly believe, has less to do with our earthly marriage and everything to do with the unconditional love of God. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence recognizing we need you. So Lord, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Lord, we ask for more of you as we seek to listen and apply what you have to say this morning. Amen. Well, look with me again at verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for or because, or this is the why statement, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see, Paul calls the husband the head as, as Christ is the head of the church. So let's unpack this. This is the why statement. The word used here for head is, is literally rendered in the Greek as where the brain is. And that makes sense. Think about how a brain functions. The brain sends and receives signals from the body. The brain works together with all other body systems to regulate and maintain our own vitality. And this is, this is headship in action, right? A headship that requires an authority for your sustainment. And certainly as the church, you and I as the church, we see and understand Christ in that role as our head. That he is sustaining and nourishing our souls. But yet in our verse, Paul, Paul omits, he doesn't really say how he arrives at this conclusion that, that, that as Christ is the head of the church, that man is the head of the wife. He, he doesn't really say why. But if you study Paul, he's not silent elsewhere. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy 2, you were informed that Paul makes this argument elsewhere about headship, and it always comes from the narrative in the creation account. Back in Genesis chapter 2, back in the garden. And we've been there in past weeks, remember, of God appointing headship, this authority that we see to the husband. It matches up. Remember with me, in verse 15 of Genesis 2, God charges Adam with the responsibility to work and keep the garden. Verse 16, God informs Adam of his commands to live by. Verses 18 through 23, God makes Eve from Adam and gives Adam the responsibility to name her. Verse 24, God calls Adam to hold fast to his wife, not vice versa. And if we turned over to chapter 3 in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, who does God come after? Who does he want to account First, it's Adam. 
You see, Paul's claim of headship is grounded out of the biblical account of creation in Genesis 2. And I want us to stay in the garden for just another moment because I want to show you one more thing before we jump into Ephesians 5 again. As we know in Genesis 2, the woman is called the helper. It's her appointed role given by God. And while this might feel like a lesser in value to our ears, such as like dad's little helper, it's not at all the implication of this word. Zach pointed out uh, helpful last uh, two weeks ago that this word is often used for God. This word of helpers used of God, such as in Psalm 33, that God is our help, our strength, and deliverer. So if anything, calling the woman as the helper implies superiority in her and not in him. Because it means that he's incomplete or insufficient without her. Just this past week, Emily relayed to me, uh, just uh, as we've been growing in this understanding of this, just as uh, uh, together, uh, our four-year-old daughter, Lucy, uh, called out. She was saying just in the middle of the day, like, as she often does, Mom, can you come over here and help me build this Elsa tower? Because everything's about frozen. Can you help me build this Elsa tower out of my magnetiles? And it struck her. It struck her that Lucy's calling for help. Would we say Emily, a mother, or any parent, for that matter, is inferior to the child? Certainly not. And we know in Genesis 1.26 that it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God created him male and female. He created them. You see, God divided up dimensions of his image into two genders so that together they would better reflect the image of God than one gender by itself. The two are not exactly the same, otherwise one would become unnecessary. I love this quote. It's, it's quoted often from ancient Jewish rabbis. No one, I don't think, really knows who it comes from. But it says this, God did not take woman from the head to rule over him or his foot to be his slave, not from his front to lead him or his back to follow him, but from his side to complete him. And here's what I want to see you or show you back in the garden in Genesis 2. Because many, many get this wrong. At what point in history are these gender roles appointed by God in marriage? Before the fall, right? Of all the marriages in the history of the world, this marriage between Adam and Eve takes the blue ribbon, right? This is the marriage as God intended it to be. Appointed gender roles not to compete with one another, but to complement one another in marriage. But then we know the story, right? Adam and Eve rebel. Sin enters. In chaos, it hits marriage right at its core. What God appoints, sin attempts to reverse. I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 3. I want, I want us to see this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After they sin, God comes to Adam and Eve and says this. God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And husbands, this is not a sexual desire. This is far from it. It's a desire to rule over 
It's used here in 3.16, but it's used elsewhere in Genesis. If you were to flip just a page or maybe on the same page to chapter 5 in verses 6 and 7, we see this, uh, the same um, sequence here. Verses, in chapter 5, verses 6, um, well, I wrote down the wrong reference. I think it's chapter 4. Verses 4, um, yes, verses, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is the Lord coming again to Cain. It says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Here it is. It's sin. It's desire is for you, but you must rule over It's the same word here. You see, sin is crouching at Cain's door. Sin wanted to rule over or master Cain's life. And God instructs Cain, don't do it. Don't allow sin to rule over you. You rule over your sin. But we know what happens, right? Cain allows his sin to rule over him. He murders his brother. Cain's sin ruled over him. So as we apply this to Genesis 3.16, Eve's desire is for her husband, meaning she will want to rule over Adam, to reverse the roles appointed by God in the garden of leader and helper in the context of marriage. And conversely, conversely we see because of sin, because of sin's entrance into the world, Adam's desire To lead in marriage, it says, is is fueled by a desire of dominance to rule over his wife. This is not the loving servant-mindedness, a husband that we find modeled in the life of Christ. It cuts both ways. But I want to be clear on this. I want to be so clear on this. Sin did not create this idea of headship and submission. Sin ruined and distorted it. And it made headship and submission ugly and destructive. And so it is with redemption, when we anticipate the coming of Christ, we don't dismantle God's created, God's design, God's best. But there's a recovery of it from the ravages of sin. Which, as we turn back to Ephesians 5, is exactly what Paul is doing. As we saw last week, husbands, your fallen headship is to be redeemed by modeling after God's intention for Christ. And that wives, your fallen submission is to be redeemed by modeling it after God's intention for the church. And we see that if we're back in Ephesians 5 verse 24. Paul says, now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Meaning quite simply and clearly that the distinctive role of the wife mirrors the distinctive role of the church. But before we look at that distinctive role of the church and the wife, there are a few things that submission in this context does not mean. And I I hope that will disarm some of us. There are some things that submission does not mean. Submission does not mean, number one, the inferiority of women. And I apologize. I cannot say that word very well. So that's what I mean by that word up there. (laughs) 
Submission does not mean the inferiority of women. We were just there, right? Genesis 2, God created uh, men and female in his image. It screams equality. Think about it this way. Jesus fully equal to God, yet fully submits himself to God on his time here on earth. And, And it's not an assault on his dignity. And wives, it's not an assault on your dignity either. On the contrary, it makes you more like God. Two, submission does not mean the dominance of the man. A wife does not exist as a servant to cater to the husband's every whim, right? A husband's leadership rather should be characterized as we see, or we saw last week, by the sacrificial love and servant-heartedness. Paul instructs in verse 25 that husbands are to lay down their lives and to love their wife as Christ loved the church. Submission does not mean the dominance of man. Submission does not mean to all men. Simply, Paul's command does not mean that all women everywhere should submit to all men. Paul is only talking about your marriage relationship here in this text. Submission does not mean unconditional obedience by the woman. If your husband tells you to do something that would make you disobey the Lord, asking you to do something that's immoral, to sell drugs or keep your kids out of church, whatever it is, you don't do it, right? Consider in, in Acts, the apostles, they're brought in by the Jewish leaders and they're, said, they're told, don't live out your faith. Stop sharing the message of Jesus. But in Acts 5.29, their response is, we must obey God rather than men. The biblical principle is always obedience to God first. God is to be obeyed. However, however, this does not mean that you as a wife has an excuse to follow because you have better judgment if you disagree. The wife's submission is qualified by God's command, not preference. And conversely, this does not mean that you only submit when you agree with your husband. That's not submission, that's agreement. Submission does not mean unconditional obedience by the wife. Submission also does not mean independent decision-making on part of the husband. And remember that God has placed various attributes uh, into each gender. So I, as a husband, look at life in a different way than my wife. She's got a whole other way of looking at life that completes mine. Marriage is a team sport. There's much more than just me in this marriage. And I would be a fool not to consult my wife. Number six, submission does not mean that women should not have the highest leadership positions, whether in in work or politics. Ephesians 5 or back to Genesis 2, it's, it's in the context of the home, of marriage. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will make some arguments regarding church. But this this headship relationship between men and women is between the home and the church. So in this principle, in no way means a man should never work for a lady, or that a woman could not occupy a high office in leadership or society. Seventhly, submission does not mean that wives must agree with everything her husband says or does. It doesn't mean that you sacrifice your freedom. It doesn't mean that everything that you do is directly dependent or connected to your husband. But it does imply that you would not do anything that is harmful to your husband or family. 
Submission does not mean passivity or silence. You know, I think oftentimes we think a wife may be unsubmissive if, if she criticizes or, or makes a request or, or gives a teaching or, or a thought to her husband, right? Proverbs 31, 26 says, She, the wife, opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. In Acts, two, two, uh, two ladies pull aside Apollos, a disciple, an early disciple of the church, to correct his theology. Submission does not mean passivity or silence. Submission does not mean, ninthly, that the man has the power to leverage over his wife. I think this is important, husbands. This verse is addressed to women. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I think this is, this is very good. He says this. This means, in application of this verse, this means, husbands, you shouldn't quote this verse at your wife. It's hers to obey, not yours to demand. If she says, if she's not doing it, all you can do is be the kind of leader it would be a joy to submit to. You play your role and trust God with hers. So just in, in summary, submission does not mean many things. There may be more that I left off, but Submission does not mean the inferiority of women. It does not mean the dominance of the man. It does not mean to all men. Submission does not mean unconditional obedience by the woman. Submission does not mean independent decision-making on the part of the husband. Submission does not mean that the the woman should not have the highest leadership positions in, in society. Submission does not mean that wives must agree with everything her husband says or does. Submission does not mean that it's passivity or silence. And submission does not mean, husbands, that you have a power to leverage over your wife. Hopefully that disarms some of us. So what does submission look like? What does submission modeled after the church look like in a marriage? Well, I see it in three ways that I trust will be helpful. Three ways that I trust will be helpful. As a church, thinking about our role, you and I together as a church, as we think about how we relate to Christ, as a church, each one of us voluntarily and willingly places ourselves under the authority of Jesus, right? Being part of a church means that you voluntarily and willingly recognize this higher authority of Jesus in your life. This is the same, this is what's true in marriage as well. Wives, marriage is a voluntary recognition to your husband's calling as the leader of your home in marriage. Secondly, as a church, we, we, we satisfy God's purposes by fulfilling this role of submission. We satisfy God's purposes by this fulfilling of the role of submission. Being part of a church, you find your greatest sense. I find my greatest sense of value and purpose by living out who God created me to be for the mission of the church. And the truth is same in marriage. Wives, you are freed to be who God appointed and created you to be as your husband's co-laborer and helpmate. There's, there's absolutely no need to struggle 
for power or control, for there's nothing to prove outside of who God created you to be. And thirdly, as a church, our submission is really rooted in the love for Jesus. Right? Being part of this church, we, we all sacrifice time and energy for the sake of the mission of the church to, to make disciples and plant churches, right? The same is true in marriage. Wives, your horizontal submission towards your spouse has a vertical dimension of worship. And I think this is the key for all of us to lean into, to grow as a church, right? In verse 22, it says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. The cornerstone, wives, of your submission is, is not for the love of your husband. That's not going to fuel it for long. It's your love of God. This is the way in which you can serve God. Your impact and ability of your horizontal marital submission is directly related to your vertical relationship with God. And you will only grow in your submission to your husband as you grow in your relationship with Christ. 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6 says this. For this, Peter says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God... This is their cornerstone belief. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now this is, if you know much about Sarah's life, you're well aware that Abraham brings much to fear. <laughs> and I, I, I contemplated going here. But it does say, Peter does say, it's Sarah's hope in God. This is her cornerstone belief, her hope in God that gives her a confident resolve to come under Abraham's leadership. Abraham didn't deserve it. He brought Sarah through some pretty horrific things. Yet because of Sarah's hope in God, she demonstrates this unwavering disposition to uphold and submit to the leadership of her husband. It's everything to do with her relationship with God. Pastor John Piper has this to say, and I think it's really, really helpful. Piper says this, Submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive. It grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. But I cannot follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. As the church joyfully submits in all things to the authority of Jesus, so too the wife joyfully submits in all things to the authority, the leadership of her husband. Now certainly we've seen that the church can inflict great harm 
and damage to Jesus in refusing to accept his, his leadership and authority. And wives, you too can inflict great harm and damage to your husband by your refusal to accept his authority or leadership. You know, above anyone else in my life, Emily, my wife, she, she knows how I, how I fail to measure up as a leader. She, she knows my biggest failures. She's seen me on my best days, but she's certainly seen me on my worst days. There's no hiding in marriage as a sinner. And you know, Emily's words can cut deep. One negative word from her is like a thousand times more than any one of y'all can throw at me. Wives, your words have power. Your words have power. And sometimes, sometimes in your marriage relationship, there are needed times of, hey, I think maybe you should think about this or offering some sort of correction. Absolutely. But often, what a husband needs most are words of strength. You are his greatest ally. Words that affirm and honor his work in leading the family. Words combined with actions that reveal your support and commitment to be his greatest ally, his source of strength, that you're one team, that you are fully united with him. For example, wives, as, as your husband perhaps sacrificially loves you by rolling out of bed night after night after night to grab the crying child so that you can get rest, or maybe perhaps he stays up late to complete that never-ending house project, thank him for taking less sleep, for eagerly seeking your good. Or perhaps as your husband spiritually leads you by setting up times to read your Bible together or individually or as a family, don't drag your feet or roll your eyes, but affirm him and it's steering the spiritual direction of your family. Or perhaps as other wives, as you gather uh, together as ladies, maybe they're, maybe they're swapping stories of this is what really annoys me about my husband or can you believe that? Fight to uphold and honor your husband by what you do or don't say. Work hard, wives, at maintaining this unwavering inner attitude that seeks to honor and affirm and support your husband as he leads your family. Your words have power. And if you find yourself resistive to this idea today, speaking to wives, to this idea of submission in marriage, I just ask the simple question of why? Why? What, what is holding you back? What is your fear? And as Zach asked a couple weeks ago, are there areas in your marriage where you do not trust your husband to lead? Perhaps that's the case. Are there areas in your marriage where you do not trust your husband to lead? And conversely, husbands, are you engaging with your wives in this? This is a conversation between husband and wives. Are you listening to your wife? Are you listening to her fears? Because this is scary. Are you listening? Are you engaging? Are you seeking to promote her good through your leadership 
of her trusting in you. Listen, I know there's a thousand and one different nuances and scenarios to talk through that we could say, well, well, what if this is true, then what? I get that. There's a lot of places we could go here to wrestle out of what this might really look like in every scenario. I encourage you to do that with your Bible open, with a prayerful heart for soft ears, and to do it in community, to wrestle with this as we go to city groups this week. Let's talk about this. Let's grow Husbands and wives. For some of you, this might just be a new idea. It may be simply just scary. I, that's okay. I get that. This is not the way of the world, but it is God's best. Created and designed that all of us might flourish. This past month, I was at the ice rink with the youth group. And I was there, you know, hanging out with the kids, but also to really honestly realize my potential as an Olympic skater. Uh, honestly, I'm just one revolution short in my triple sow cow to get on the podium, I think, uh, next Olympics. Uh, uh, Taylor can tell, I am a horrible skater. I, I was just trying to do the hockey stop, and I, I didn't even get it by the end of the night. Uh, I am a horrible skater. But if there's one thing that I'm convinced at in skating, and this is, this is going to be revolutionary, it's a lot of work. I've known a few elite skaters growing up, and at a young age, uh, devoting their entire life, right? As, as little kids, devoting their entire life, their parents as well, devoting their entire lives for this kid to become a great figure skater. And it makes sense. I mean, because how many of us in this room can even do like one jump where we like do one revolution and land on our feet without inflicting great bodily harm? Like that's terribly hard to do. And yet when we watch the Olympics, like they're not just doing one of those, they're doing three, four, I don't know, maybe they're even doing five these days. I don't know. It's, it's an incredible thing, spectacle to watch. And as a non-skater, I'm not how sure true this is, but from my vantage point, when I turn on the Olympics, which is coming up this summer, skating solo seems hard, right? That seems hard. But throwing a pair combination, I don't understand how that works. Because no longer are they just doing the jumps and the spins and the choreographed moves as an individual, but now they're doing it in perfect unity together on the ice. And it's stunning. There's this majestic and effortless feel of two skaters, fully complementary together, harmonious looking, working together to make this incredible show. We marvel at the man with his strength as he lifts the lady up with one arm while maintaining balance on the ice, right? That's incredible. And we marvel at the beauty and grace of the lady as she's like acrobatically up in the air and like spins and dismounts safely to back to the ice. It's incredible strength. It's incredible grace and beauty. But when we're watching the Olympics or said performance, we're just seeing the end result. What we don't see is the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. The unending amounts of meetings to become in sync. 
or the time spent memorizing and rehearsing their routines. Neither of those pairs are just showing up at the rink on game day saying, hey, let's do it. Significant time is spent together. There is hard work. There's a building of trust. There's a lot of communication. There's a learning of who each other is and learning how they both operate given the different situations or dynamics. You know what? Each one of them realizes that they have a role to play. One role is not better than the other. But there's a willingness to come together. And and what I love about figure skaters in in pairs is is oftentimes a, a partner will fall. You know, I, I, it makes sense to me. Oftentimes a partner will fall. But as soon as that routine is over, at least on television, there's just a giant hug of encouragement, of love. They understand that that next time might be them. Falling is real. Failure is real. But one partner is not better than the other. They're judged as a team. They win and lose as a team. And that's how I think of marriage. God's beautiful design of coming together, of working together, embracing the roles that God has given us, knowing that we couldn't accomplish this independent of each other. But there's a working together to assist one another to develop a strategy to make the home, to make our lives where Christ is honored, where the family is positioned to flourish. So in closing, marriage at different times in history has been thought of in different ways, certainly. In ancient times, right, it was mostly just primarily functional. It established economic stability. You know, you have kids, so they take care of you as you age. The modern view of marriage is, is that about romantic fulfillment, right? You look for the person to complete you, to make your dreams come true and then live happily ever after with them but you see God did not create that's not God's design or intention for marriage marriage is never an end of itself marriage exists not to tell its own story but to tell the story of Jesus's marriage to the church so back in Ephesians I want you to see this verse Ephesians 5 as Paul kind of closes his argument here Ephesians 5, in verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what is the mystery of a man and woman coming together in one flesh? The great mystery is that from the very beginning, back in the garden, God intended marriage to be a depiction of the gospel. That it exists, marriage exists to manifest the glory of Christ and his redemptive love for the bride. So husbands, you are to love your bride in such a way that people can see Christ's love for the church. That's what's at stake. 
And wives, you are to submit to your husbands in such a way that the world can see the loveliness of Christ reflected in your obedience. That is what is at stake. See, in this way, God intends marriage to symbolize the gospel, to reveal to our world the relationship of Christ and the church. Which does mean, which does mean that our earthly marriages are just but a mere shadow, a copy, an image, a parable of the real marriage between Christ and the church, between you and I. And if our union with Christ, this mystery revealed, is what is ultimate, if our relationship with Christ is what is ultimate, then that implies that the single greatest relationship for any one of us, student, child, single, wife, husband, whoever you are, is your relationship with Christ. And that should be your pursuit and aim in life to grow in Christ-likeness. Because that is eternal. Eternal life is to know Christ. Often we make marriage the ultimate goal of discipleship. That's not true. The goal is to grow in Christ's likeness. The marriage between Christ and the church is eternal. It's meant as a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. And as we press into that, what comes out of that is that gender does matter for the glory of God in marriage. As the gender roles of husband and wife in marriage, they're not arbitrarily assigned and they're not reversible any more than the role of Christ and the church are reversible. And without such, without such leaning into this, the world will fail to see the completeness, the fullness, the majesty, the great redemptive love of God. May we be a people, may I be a person, may you as a single, as a married, as a child, as a student, as an old person, as a young person, may all of us image God well as his image bearers. May we press in and pursue Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we give you praise this morning that you have kindly revealed and showed yourself through marriage. And Lord, I pray in each one of our hearts that, Lord, that our end goal, our full aim, our total pursuit would be to pursue you, Jesus. That our priority in this life, our primary relationship would be to know you. And so Lord, I pray if there's some here in this room, Lord, who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would reveal your love to them. For those of us who have placed our trust and treasure in you, Jesus, I pray that we would be fueled as we leave this morning to lean in in new and deeper and more profound ways as we follow you, Jesus. May we image you well. May we be a church known 
for this. In your name we pray, amen.